Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Let's do this. I'm ready. Phone lines are open. 866-348-7884. 866-34-TRUTH. Any question of any kind, anything relevant to any subjects we discuss on the line of fire, anything relevant for Christian radio, give me a call. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. By the way, about 90 minutes from now, slightly less than that, we are going to be doing a live YouTube chat. So if you're unable to get through, if the phone lines are jammed or it's not possible for you to call maybe where you live in the world, then we'll be, going, we'll be doing another special session answering your YouTube questions, interacting with you about 90 minutes from now. 866-34-TRUTH. We're going right to the phones. How's that for quick? We start in Stevenson, Oregon. Lewis, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Hello. Um, I, have, I have a personal question, to be honest, and, and it's this. Um, my wife belongs to a church where the pastor believes that sincere uh, confession uh, by, by parties involved um, frees them from having to dissolve unscriptural marriages. Um, I... I kind of take the most conservative viewpoint on this. Um, but the thing is, my wife um, is being a very compassionate person. Uh, I've been concerned about her continuing with that church. and But she does, and she prays for the people, and she's also on the pastor's prayer team. She meets with, uh, with some people with the pastor once a week. My question is, does this have any um, effect on my marriage with my wife? Uh, I'm. Yeah, I know this so, is a very confusing issue. Yeah, Lewis, I, I I just need to understand what you're talking about when you say sure. unscriptural marriages and then confession can, can dissolve them. What what do you mean by that? Okay, um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. Uh, apparently, at another church, a woman left her husband for another man. They got married, and they eventually had to leave the church. Uh, she was married, and she divorced her husband and married this other man. So they went to the church my wife was at. They went, apparently, and talked to the pastor, and, you know, were, at least the woman, for sure, because she got up one, one day and, and spoke about it. Uh, apparently, he judged that they had real sorrow for what they'd done, but he allowed them to continue in the marriage. And because my wife right. is part okay. of that church— and I understand. Yeah. Yeah, Thank so, you. look— First, God is the judge of each individual and, and knows each situation. But on the surface of it, a, a man leaves his wife. Let's say he's having an affair with a gal he works with. He leaves his wife. They're, they're Christians. He leaves his wife. He divorces her. He marries this woman. So biblically, they would be in adultery. We'd agree on that. right? So now, the couple, maybe two years later— And is that a— uh, Right. So, yeah, so they come— me, it, it, is that adultery continuous? All right, or right. What's your so, opinion on that? All right, so yes, I would understand that it is. 
that it is continuous. Now, let's say right. two years later, they come under conviction of sin and realize they're in sin. And they, they go to the pastor and say, we need to tell you our whole story. This is what happened. We want to confess our sin. So the right thing to do is say, okay, you confess it. Now you need to separate, okay? Because otherwise it's continuing in adultery. Now, is it possible that there could be true repentance, that their ex-spouses will not reconcile with them, that they've married and moved on, and that God could one day bless that relationship? That's between them and God. But if I stole your car, right, and a year later came to you and said, I've got to confess to you, I stole your car, I've sinned against you, well, you would expect me to return the car, wouldn't you? So I would, I, I appreciate the compassion, and I understand you could say, look, David committed adultery and he murdered, and then the baby that was conceived died, but then after that, he married Bathsheba and was blessed with her as a wife. The next child born was Solomon, who was also given the name uh, loved by the Lord. So I, I would say, in terms of your own marriage, no, I don't see it as a threat or an issue. And I understand the compassion behind it. But as I understand it, if the relation, relationship is adulterous, let's, ju let's just say the scenario that I just gave you, okay? We'll call him Brother Smith. Okay. Brother Smith leaves Sister Smith because he's having an affair with Sister Jones. He then divorces Sister Smith, marries Sister Jones, but Sister Smith is in prayer believing God that her husband's going to come back and that there's going to be repentance, right? So if he truly repents, what, what does he have to do? Say, I'm not rightly married to this woman. I need to divorce her and go back to my wife. Otherwise, we're just, what's to stop people from just, hey, I robbed the bank, say I'm so sorry about robbing the bank, but then I keep the money. I, I would not be concerned right. in terms of, I insist she leaves the church there, or this is going to threaten our marriage. But it is, a, it, it is an issue of difference which can creep in in other areas of well that, that raise concern. I would just say keep an eye open, have candid discussions, make sure there's agreement about the sanctity of marriage and, and the horror of sin and the cost of sin and things like that, and, and make sure you're in harmony on those things, okay? But if, she, if she's accepting this, though, does that make her go into heresy or— because I love my wife. I, but. No, I, I, don't believe, I don't believe this is a heaven or hell issue. In other words, that, that because she believes that someone is truly repentant and God's meeting them where they are and saying, okay, you sinned, but I'm going to bless you from here on. I don't believe that's heretical. I just believe it's erroneous and they're potentially giving people false assurance. But no, I, I, I wouldn't stretch it in, in that way. All right. So it should not affect my ability to remain married to my wife, in other words. Oh, 100 No, there's no reason for it to affect it whatsoever. That marriage is for life and is set apart by God for that purpose. All right? Okay. Yeah, that was my main concern is how no, does sir. that affect my and my wife's relationship? It, it, it yeah. doesn't. It shouldn't. It's just a difference that you have. But major on the majors together and let her affirm that your marriage together is for life. To death do you part. All right? Thank you very much for your time, Doctor. I yeah, sure it. thing. And thanks for the, the personal difficult question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Michael in Puerto Rico. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, yes, sir. Dr. Brown, I had a question. Um, how would you advise someone that's seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, 
you know, uh, I know that the Bible talks about repentance, you know, repent and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. But how would you advise someone, and if I could follow that up, please? Yeah, certainly. I, I would first say that we want to affirm that the moment someone is saved, they receive the Spirit, they are indwelt by the Spirit, they are sanctified by the Spirit. The moment they are born again, we, we absolutely want to emphasize that and affirm that, but that there is an empowering by the Spirit that Jesus tells us in Luke eleven thirteen that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, that we see a pattern in the book of Acts where people are genuinely saved and yet receive this empowering, this gifting by the Spirit subsequent to salvation. So what, what I would say is, uh, number one, believe that God has it for us, read through the book of Acts and see how the Holy Spirit moved upon people that received the Spirit and manifestation of tongues or prophecy. And I would seek out earnestly recognizing that this is not by our works, but by his goodness and say, Father, fill me to the full so I can most effectively serve you. Fill me to the full so I can be used by you as a more effective witness and glorify Jesus. And I would expect the Holy Spirit to move upon me. I would welcome him. I would say, Lord, I receive your spirit by faith. And as I begin to worship God and interact with God, if I, if I felt the Holy Spirit moving on me to begin to worship him in a new language and begin to speak in tongues, then I would let that happen in a, in a natural way. But I would ask God according to his promise and say, I believe that, that I receive what you give me. And this is to be empowered and for the glorification of the Lord. Uh, I, I'm just looking uh, online for, for a title here, uh, in, in terms of something that might, might help you as well. Yeah. Uh, Ruben Torrey, let's think of a couple things. He was not a tongue speaker, but he's one who believed that there was a baptism in the spirit, uh, except, uh, excuse me, to my knowledge, he wasn't a tongue speaker, uh, baptism of the Holy spirit, how to receive this promised gift by Ruben Torrey, T O R R E Y. You might find that helpful as well. But meditate on Luke, the 11th chapter, the promises there leading up to verse 13. Meditate on those to build your faith. Thank you, sir. 866-34-TRUTH is number to call. We rarely have an open line on Friday. We've got a couple open lines right now. I always like to mention that at the outset, because the earlier you call, the better chance we have of getting to your calls. Uh, Let's go to Todd in Seagrove. Our buddy in North Carolina. How you doing, man? I'm doing just fine, my man. How about yourself? Good. Hey, Todd, how long ago did you lose your sight? Uh, it was sometime in the 2012 to 2013 time period. I don't remember exactly what month it was that it happened, but that's the, the time period that it did happen. Really? All right. So, so roughly how old were you when that happened? Uh, let me see. Well, I would have been between 50 and 51. Got it. And, and do you mind my asking how it happened? It's a retinitis pigmentosa. It's an inherited eye problem from my father. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. But obviously you've, you've gone on functioning and following the Lord even without your sight. You, and again, I only, I only know that you, you don't see because you mentioned it recently. But bless you, man, for your perseverance in the Lord. Well, I appreciate that. I give him all the honor and the glory for what he's done because I mean he's he's brought me through a lot uh, since that since I was saved back in the November of 1993. Got it. I'm sure he has. 
Yes, sir. Your question today, sir. Okay, it's having to do with Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, which is the last verse of the chapter. And mm-hmm. This is a comparison question uh, between the King James and the New King James Version. Um, in the King James, John is told that he would prophesy before many peoples, tongues, nations, and kings. But in the New King James, it says about. And it's like before and about are definitely two different words. I'm curious to find out which is the correct translation. Got it, right. So uh, King James, before many peoples, New King James, about, CSB, about, ESV, about, NIV, about. And remember, New King James and King James are relying on the identical Greek text. So tell you what, we got the music break. That means... Time's out. We'll be right back, and I'll answer you on the other side of the break. Thanks. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. I was just looking at my Greek text there during the break. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. You've got questions. We've got answers. So Todd in Seagrove, yeah, about is, is certainly the right translation. The Greek is epi, which can mean over or on. Uh, it, it can mean uh, various uh, usages on the basis of, etc., depending on how it occurs grammatically. But certainly it, it does not mean before. In other words, that you're going to be appearing before them. That would not be the most natural way to read it here. So concerning. Concerning is what it means in this context. Concerning, about. Hence, uh, I'm looking at the, the uh, Tyndale translation. That says among. All right? Uh, so that that's prior to the King James, but basically every, every modern translation does say about, and that's the right way to understand it. So the King James saying before uh, would give a misleading impression there uh, about is, is correct. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just a reminder to join our growing Patreon team. Let's see here. We're up to 84 Patreon supporters in our first month. So you team with us to help us get this broadcast out every day. You team with us to produce new cutting-edge videos and other key media that is so critical and so important. We're willing to do it. It's our joy to tackle the controversies. It's our joy to run into the battle and take the flack with joy. But we do it with your help. It's a partnership. So go to patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown. Just pennies a day, become a Patreon patron. All right, 30 cents or more per day, so $10 more per month, and you help us do all that we're doing. Plus, we bless you with a bonus video, special teaching every week with the YouTube exclusive chat. You get to watch those as well once they're archived, and uh, you share in the reward of all that we do. So thanks. Thanks for joining our support team, 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, in the second half of the show today, I'm going to give you a fun, important announcement about Brother Nathaniel, the internet celebrity, Brother Nathaniel, Russian Orthodox monk, Jewish believer in Jesus, that I've differed with on some issues. I've, I've got a neat announcement for you. 
3-4-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Kenneth in Beaumont, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks, Dr. Brown. You know, I just uh, a few weeks ago sort of reconnected with your ministry, and I realized that you and I actually had lunch together up in Calgary about 20 years ago. Seriously? Um, you were brought to Calgary with, uh, through a friend of mine, and we, we sat down in his apartment. What, was that in, in, in Edmonton? Together. Let's see, was that Edmonton, Cal, Upshaw? Was it, or someone it was, else? Uh, no, it was in Calgary. I think you were speaking at a conference at the um, Jubilee Auditorium. Calgary, ah. uh, uh, okay, you know, of course, Ed, what am I thinking, Edmund, Calgary, Alberta? I think, I, don't know what name was, I think my friend's name was Jim Martin, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, e- e- either way, uh, with Cal yeah. Upshaw and Edmonton, that would have been over 30 years ago. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, Cal- okay. Calgary, Alberta, okay. Anyway, well, nice to hear from yeah, you again, anyway. Kenneth. <laughs> yeah, yes, you know, I really appreciate your ministry. So, uh, you know, I've been in ministry a long time, uh, but I have this uh, question um, and I, I and the answer, my answer to it is I, I side more conservatively. So I'm thinking, like I typically in charismatic world, I keep hearing this uh, description of Christ's encounter with Satan after he dies, like somewhere in hell, it's happening, and uh, you know, it's almost like a Carmen-esque uh, song where where you know they they're wrestling and, and <laughs> Jesus takes the keys, you know, yeah, or reflective of Paul Bilheimer, destined for the throne kind of approach. Right. Um, and so I'm just kind of wondering what your take is. You know, part of my problem with that idea is that it seems to me that the Scripture is a little bit vague as to what happened. First Peter 3 is certainly vague, you know, uh, and differs in many uh, ideas as to what it actually means when Christ preached and the Spirit's in prison. Yeah, um, so, so here, here's you know, what I do. I, I, put, I put the following verses together. I put 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 2 together. Um, I, I see in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus is not preaching to the spirits in prison with, uh, with the Greek verb for evangelize or preach the good news. Right. Rather, he's More declaring. Like proclamation or right, right, proclamation. Yeah. So I understand he is proclaiming I am he, that he is proclaiming their defeat, their judgment. That's part of it. I see in, in Colossians, the second chapter, that, that Paul says that Jesus triumphed over principalities and powers and made an open display of them. Uh, and the best understanding is through the cross. So verse 15 of Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, either God triumphing over them in Jesus or triumphing over them in it, namely the cross. So I see that. And then I see Ephesians 4 which is quoting from Psalm 68, where it says he gave gifts to men. So in, in, Ephesians, in, in Psalm 68, God is receiving the spoils from the enemy. And, and what happens is, is that he, he descends uh, to earth to fight. This is the image from Psalm 68. So the king would go out in battle with his troops. They would sack a city, and then the king would lead them out in triumphal procession. He'd have the the, the captured people with, with a hook in their jaw or with a rope around their waist, and he, and he would receive the spoil from the city. And that's the image that as Messiah ascends up into heaven, he leads captives in his train. So there is a public display somehow of Satan and his demons being defeated and humiliated by Jesus. 
And now that he has set us free, this is some of the plunder, he turns around and gives those that he set free as gifts back to the church. So something momentous happened whereby the Lord made a public display of his victory over Satan and demonic powers through the cross and through the ascension, whether it's his bodily resurrection or simply a spiritual ascension that takes place. So I I believe that happens, and I believe that we should preach that in terms of Satan's defeat and the victory of Jesus. Beyond that, how, the exact scenario, etc., that's a matter of speculation that I don't get into. Right. And and what about, like, the idea, like, did Jesus take the keys of hell and death, or did he always have them? And it was just a declarative moment in Revelation where he says, I have the keys of hell and death, you know? Right, um, right. Well, and, certainly I mean, at, the, at the least, Kenneth, a declarative moment, at, at the least. Did Satan wrongly have them, uh, Hebrews 2, that he held people in power, uh, held people in fear, yeah, through, fear through death? death. Right, that that he had them under his power. Is that what it's talking about? And now, having set them free and broken Satan's power, I have them. He's taken them back because Satan wrongly had them. It's possible. Or it could be declarative. So I'd be careful either way in preaching that, but I would absolutely declare the victory and the triumph and the public display to say that's the spiritual reality, and we need to take hold of it and understand the degree and reality of Satan's defeat, we need to take hold of that. And then from there, we can better live in divine authority today. Hey, I'm going to run to another call, but great hearing from you. And thanks for the questions. 866-34-TRUTH. And I agree that, that we need to be careful to not paint a picture beyond what Scripture says. What Scripture paints is dramatic enough already. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. I just told you that. Uh, let's go to James in Ohio. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello, sir. Hello. Yeah. Okay. It was not, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I do have a question for you, and it's about um, the definition of marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe that the way Christians look at it today as one man, one woman, is mm-hmm. a little bit overboard because the Old Testament doesn't completely teach that idea based on the fact that we see all the patriarchs and uh, they practice the polygyny. And it, there were times when even when a man failed to practice polygyny, it was disrespectful mm-hmm. for him. We see that in the book of Ruth, when the king's man was supposed to pick up Ruth, but he was afraid uh, that he would mar his inheritance mm-hmm. because certainly yeah. he was already married. Okay, so he, he could not, and then Boaz had to redeem Ruth. So if in the culture today we want to define it the way uh, evangelicals are doing all the time, we put ourselves in problems. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So, so James, uh, I'm not sure from your accent if you're African, but there are African countries, of course, many that practice polygamy, and some of them, like Uganda, would have a sizable Christian population. And obviously, if you went there and brought the gospel to to polygamous families, the first goal is not to break up the families. However, that being said, in the Garden of Eden, did God create Adam and Eve and Yvette and Yvonne? No. It was one man and one woman. In the New Testament, what does Jesus say as God's pattern in Matthew 19, 4 through 6? It is one man 
and one woman joined together for life. And the two, not the three or four or five, are one. All right? So we have the pattern in Genesis 2. We have Jesus reaffirming it in Matthew 19. We have constant examples of polygamy being bad and destructive, constant problems, whether it's Sarah taking Hagar, whether it's Jacob with Rachel and Leah, whether it's David with his many wives or Solomon with his 300 wives and 700 concubines. Every example that's fleshed out in the Old Testament of polygamy is bad. Then you have Paul giving requirements for leaders in 1 Timothy 3, saying that a leader must be the husband of but one wife. And then the constant exhortation in the New Testament to follow the example of the leaders. Polygamy was never God's best and shouldn't be put forward as God's best. If you reach polygamous people with the gospel, it may take several generations to bring about full change. But it was never God's best. His intent, one man, one woman joined together for life. Thank you, sir, for your question. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Okay, I've got a neat announcement for you. Uh, Many of you have seen Brother Nathaniel on the Internet. He is a Russian Orthodox monk. And he is a Jewish believer in Jesus as I am. And we obviously have points in common, but some years back I differed with him about comments he had made about Jewish people or Jesus being a Jew. And anyway, he, we reached out to him back then. He wasn't eager to, to have dialogue back then. He reached out to us recently and we talked by phone. We had a, a great talk by phone today. He just sent me a note saying great talk and said, feel free to announce this. So I'm going to, it's going to be some weeks. Okay. It's not going to happen in the next few weeks. So maybe six weeks, two months, something like that. Or within that time, uh, we are going to do God willing. We're planning on doing two full broadcasts and we'll record them on Skype. So you get to you gotta watch, you gotta see brother Nathaniel too, right? In his whole, the, 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 the outfit that he wears, that's part of his being a Russian Orthodox monk. So, uh, We are planning to do two broadcasts together, two whole shows, one on our areas of agreement and the other on our areas of disagreement. So just want to let you know that we we legitimately had a great conversation today and we're both looking forward to doing the shows. How's that? All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Mark in Rochester, New York. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hi, I want to know what your thoughts are on Freemasonry and if there's a person on a leadership team in a church that's been participating in this for 40 years and the pastor doesn't seem to, to have any issue with it. Plus, this poor man has had just a lot of tragedy surrounding his life. So I was interested in your thoughts. Yeah, well, anyone that's had a lot of tragedy in their lives, you obviously want to deal with them compassionately and not add to their pain and rejection, obviously. And I'm sure you mentioned that to give us context, but I I am not an expert in any way on Freemasons, but everything I understand very simply, no, you cannot be a leader in the church and be an active Freemason at the same time. 
that it is a religion in itself, and that there are elements of it that would be contrary to the gospel. I know in some parts of America, being Masons is just like breathing, and plenty of people in churches are Masons, and they just kind of put it in another category. And maybe that's been the experience with, with your pastor. Uh, and I do not believe that Freemasons are responsible for all the problems in the world. You know, you hear exaggerated things, but I believe it's wrong. I do not see how you can be a leader in the church and practice Freemasonry at the same time. And if you're truly following Jesus, I would assume that you would leave your, your local chapter, whatever it is that you're participating in, share the gospel with those people and make it exit. So I, I, would, I would be concerned. What I would do is, is not to be divisive or in, a, or in an angry spirit. I'd get online and find out whatever accurate sources I could go to. You know, for, for example, a source like karm.org is, is a good, reliable source. So I would go to karm.org and, and then look at, at Freemasons and see what it tells you. Look at some of the discussions there, separate fact from fiction, and then go with that to your pastor and say, look, I'm not trying to be a troublemaker, and I don't want to hurt this brother, but this is what Freemasons believe and hold to, and, and I don't understand how he can be an elder in the church and doing that at the same time. All right? Okay. Yep. Thank you. Sure thing. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 866-34-TRUTH. Hang on. Is my clicker working here? Just give me one second to get reoriented. Somehow I was, I was clicking to try to change things here and not able to do it. Let's try again. There we go. All right. Mark in Australia. We talked a couple weeks ago. Welcome back to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. It's going to be on your show again. Good to talk with you, man. Hey, I have a question. Yeah, I have a, I have a question on, I actually have two questions on the topic of fire, if that's okay. Just sure. the fire of God. Yeah. Um, the first question is, uh, what is the baptism of fire that is spoken about in Matthew 3.11? Um, mm-hmm. Just to be more specific, I've heard people say that it's referring to hellfire and that those who are baptized in fire, uh, it's referring to them going to hell. How would you, well, what is your response on that? Oh, no, that, that's certainly not true. Matthew 3, 10 through 12, John the, the Immerser, John the Baptist speaking. And in verses 10 and 12, he speaks of the fire of judgment for those who don't repent. Verse 11, speaking of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we know that Jesus gives reference back to this uh, elsewhere in the Gospels. And, and we, we, we know in Acts 1, it's referred back to what John said. So, no, this is for believers. And there are two ways to read it. The way I read it and understand it, many other scholars, is that the baptism in the Spirit is a baptism in fire. That when we are baptized in the Spirit, remember Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes with tongues of fire. And throughout the Bible, God is associated with fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, quoted in Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. Malachi 3, the Messiah comes as a refiner's fire. I preached whole messages just going through all of the biblical references about fire. So God is often associated with fire. The glory of God is often associated with fire, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire over the tabernacle, etc. So I understand this as God's purity, God's fire, God's passion. When we receive his spirit, we receive his fire. Others read it 
as a baptism of the Spirit. That's the empowering and a baptism of fire. That's a separate cleansing, judging that, that the Messiah brought about. But I understand Spirit and fire talking about one and the same thing. It's the, the Holy Spirit's fire that we receive, and we receive the Spirit, we receive the fire. But it's certainly, absolutely not talking about hell. It's in contrast with hell in verses 10 and 12, and this is something that we're blessed with by the Messiah. Awesome. Um, so I have another question of fire, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I've I seen a video of you. Uh, it's from the Brownsville Revival, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to ask what your purpose and intention is when you call down fire on people. Um, from the New Testament, I see that trials and stuff are referred to as fire, but I'm not really sure what you mean and some other you know, charismatic yeah. and Pentecostals mean when they call down fire on people. Yeah, I'm smiling uh, because I've seen critics play that. My fellow Pentecostals and Charismatics would say, wow, that's glorious. The Lord was really moving. That's powerful. And critics put it up like, you can't trust this brown. He's crazy. So it's it's kind of interesting (laughs) stuff that we'd say, wow, the Lord was moving. Others say, you're crazy. So by praying for fire, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to touch them. I'm praying for a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. I've preached for so many decades on God being a consuming fire. And, and the Holy Spirit moving, the, the fire of the Spirit. Often people speak of the fire of revival. So what I'm praying, and because we're praying for thousands and thousands of people, uh, and many times they'd be instantly touched by the Lord so there wouldn't be a long time to pray. That was just my way of boiling it down. That's what came out of my heart. God, touch them afresh with your Spirit. Fill them afresh with your Spirit. A fresh moving of your Spirit uh, in their lives. God, touch them with your real presence and your real essence and visit them in your power. And one word, fire. That's what I'm praying. I'm not praying down judgment. We're not calling down physical fire. We're, we're not praying for fiery trials. But you'd be amazed. if you and, and I preach literally from Genesis to Revelation on the fire of God. All of the times that God's presence is associated with fire, that his glory is associated with fire, that his power is associated with fire. And, and as I mentioned earlier, God himself is a consuming fire and the Holy Spirit's baptism is a baptism of the spirit and fire. So that's what I'm praying. It's just in one word. Sometimes I just pray, Phil, Phil, you know, someone said, who's Phil? Not who's Phil, Lord, fill them afresh. And, And then it just became a very natural way to pray. Again, a summary, Lord, touch them with your power, touch them with your presence, touch them with your purity, touch them with your passion, fire. That's what I'm praying. And I, I pray it for people to this day, but that's what I mean by it. And good thing is the Lord understands and 99.9% of the people I pray for understand what I mean as well. Yeah, so hopefully that helps. That, All right. God bless yeah. you, man. All right, God bless. Thanks. You know, one thing about Mark, I remember him calling a couple of weeks ago. What a, what a gentle spirit. What, what a genuine desire to understand truth. And, and understand things he may differ with, and then sort it out, to take it and meditate on it and sort out the answers we give. But I appreciate that. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to New Hampshire. Chris, welcome to the Line of Fire. Yeah, hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for your ministry. I just had two quick questions for you. The first one is, when exactly does the rapture take place? Is it in Revelation eleven fifteen at the seventh final trumpet? So it would follow the seven seals and the seven trumpets, but it would be before the seven bowls of God's wrath. 
And my second question had to do with, can we theoretically not sin just like Jesus when we become Christians? And I'm thinking of 1 Peter 2, 21 through 22, when Jesus says to follow his example. It has to do with suffering, but then I'm just because Jesus didn't sin. So I know realistically, until we get to heaven, we're made perfect. But in the meantime, can we theoretically not sin, and therefore believing that perhaps sin less? Yeah, yeah. So with regard to your second question, of course, we seek to emulate the character of Jesus. In ourselves, we can't do it, but we're not doing it in our own power. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are empowered by God's grace, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly living. So we are empowered by the Spirit and by God's grace to be overcomers. We consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God, And we do that every day of our lives until we see Jesus face to face. So certainly, before I was saved, I I sinned willfully. I sinned by intent. I sinned without repentance. Now that I'm saved, my desire is to please God, to do the right thing. Sin is now the exception to the rule of my life. I'm a saint, not a sinner in terms of lifestyle. Even though I've never lived a perfect day as a believer, I've never perfectly loved God 24-7 and perfectly loved my neighbor as myself 24-7, but that's what I seek to do every day, and absolutely, we should be growing. We should be sinning less, or our sins should be less egregious. As far as the rapture, if Revelation 11 describes it, then beginning in Revelation 12, we have kind of a recapitulation. All right, so Revelation 11 gets us to the end of the literal return of Jesus and is establishing his kingdom on the earth, the the final trumpet and the second coming referred to in Matthew 24 and elsewhere with the sound of the trumpet, okay? And also 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and Zechariah 9. If, again, Revelation 11 speaks of it, then what follows Revelation 12 is kind of like, let's go back and recap this from another angle. Hope that helps, sir. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm just looking at a note that was sent to me from Barry. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for your message of truth. I believe that God puts the love of Jesus Christ in every truly born-again Christian's heart for the Jewish people. I have yet to meet a Jewish person, so I wonder where Barry lives. I have yet to meet a Jewish person, but I've already zealously defended them against verbal assaults similar to the ones mentioned in your article. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I enjoy reading your articles on World Daily. Keep preaching the truth. Hey, friends, we are going for it. We are preaching the truth, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for your prayer support, your financial support. For partnering with us again, real easy way to do it. Patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown. Watch a short video there, and and I think you'll want to join with us. All right, listen. Phone lines, phone lines have been jammed the entire show, except for like a two-second moment there where they weren't, but jammed the entire show. I won't be able to get to all your calls, and many of you unable to get through. But here's the good news: about 40 minutes from now, so that's 4:30 Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to come back on YouTube. So that's the Ask Dr. Brown channel on YouTube. Just go to SKDR Brown on YouTube and just answer your YouTube questions for about one solid hour. That's all I'm going to do is answer your YouTube questions. So 
I can't get you now and you're able to join us on YouTube, we'll take up your questions there. All right, we go to Tampa, Florida. Stephen, thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for taking my call again. And I appreciate uh, I called, I think, yesterday, and you told me to look on your website. And I did that, and it was very useful. Um, but today I have a question in Philippians 3 that I've kind of been pondering about, uh, not of understanding what Paul is saying, but Paul's feeling in the moment. In Philippians 3, 10 and 11, <clears throat> he says, I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And a few verses up in verses 8, he says, I consider everything to be garbage. Mm-hmm. Because, of, you know, I press on towards Jesus. Well, it seems, it's funny how he goes, I think everything is garbage, but here's what I want, you know? And I just want right. to get your opinion on that, almost like, he had a, a personal moment when writing this about, dude, this is what I'm trying to strive for. I want to get your take on that. Yep, you bet. And, and thanks thanks for the question, Stephen. By the way, folks aren't uh, allowed to call in within a few weeks of a previous call, a couple weeks at least, just to be fair to others. So sometimes a caller may call in, we just may refer them to a website or something. If you're wondering, how, how is it someone's calling every day? So don't worry about that. We try to be fair, get to as many as we can. So, Stephen, we know that Paul has elsewhere expressed his absolute assurance that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. And then earlier in Philippians, in the first chapter, he talks about his desire to depart and be with Jesus. So there is clarity that he's absolutely sure about his salvation, that he writes to Timothy, I know whom I believe. I'm confident that he can keep that which I've committed to him. And in 2 Timothy, he's coming to the end of his life. He knows that he's going to receive a crown of righteousness. He knows that. So on the one hand, he has that assurance. But the language here seems to be saying that every, every, the thing that I want most is the resurrection of the dead and to be glorified with Jesus forever. And that I'm striving with all my might to attain that. Now, some claim that there will be a special rapture of a certain class of people. And that's what he was longing for, that he wanted to be among that people who would be part of this, this outcalling of the saints. And that's the resurrection of which he spoke. But I see no evidence for that anywhere in Scripture. And to me, what, what Paul is saying is, is someone who's already accepted by the Lord and already forgiven is saying from another perspective, I'm striving with every ounce of my might to live in such a way that I can be among those raised from the dead when Jesus returns. So is it a given on the one hand? Yes. On the other hand, Paul lives in a way that that's not like it was a given. Like he says in first Corinthians nine 27, I, I, I beat my body. I subdue my body so that after I've preached to others, I myself would not be a castaway. I look at his similar language here, but it's a fascinating question. Thanks for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. Um, let's go to Linda and Gastonia. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, I want you to know, I pray for your ministry all the time. And a few weeks ago, I decided to become a torchbearer and a Patreon supporter. And a week later, I got this wonderful surprise in the mail. You sent me this beautiful suede covered, 
uh, Tree of Life uh, Bible, which is just gorgeous, and I want to thank you for that so much. God bless. Um, I, I, question, think I, I think you called and said you were about to do that. So good. I'm so glad we're more connected. Yes, and, and it's a beautiful definitely. Bible we send out as a gift. Good. I'm glad it blessed it you. Is, so it your is, question. I, I was totally surprised. I was so surprised. My question is about uh, your book, uh, We Are Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Yeah. Um, is it already out? Is it available now? Uh, yes, it is. But tell you what, Linda. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. do, do, you, do you prefer e-books or are you happy with a physical book? I like holding a book and turning okay, the so, page. <laughs> all right, stay right, stay right there, Linda. And um, I, I want to have LaShawn get your address. LaShawn, we're going to send Linda as a gift, not afraid of the Antichrist. I just want to send it to you and sign it as you became a torchbearer and a Patreon supporter. Just an extra thank you. So that's our gift to you, Linda, okay? So LaShawn, get Linda's address and just, uh, when you write to us, signed copy of not afraid of the antichrist. And we'll, we'll send that out to, to you, Linda, just wanted to be a, a blessing and thank you. And, uh, we just, we're picking up some Patreon supporters during the show. Thanks for partnering with us and joining with us. All right, Sean in Lansing, Michigan. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Sean, you there. Hello, I guess not. All right. Let's go to Jacob in Wake Forest, North Carolina. You are on the line of fire. Hey, how you doing? Doing well, thanks. Um, yeah, I just had a question about the poetic themes in the Pentateuch. We're, uh, we're studying that in the class I'm in. I found it very interesting and uh, convincing uh, based on uh, John Snailhammer's uh, book. I'm assuming you're somewhat familiar with that. Um, but specifically, so like the... The two instances, excuse me? Yeah, go ahead. I'm here. Oh, sorry. Um, the two instances of um, Moses' speech at the uh, end of Deuteronomy yeah, and um, Balaam's speech in, in mm-hmm. Numbers, and there's a lot of parallels there between location and sort of the time in their life when they gave the speech and different things. And um, I'll give you carte blanche, man. Just speak to it however you want, I guess, to offer some additional insight or advice and in, in researching that, learning about the narrative structure of the Pentateuch or whatever, man. How about yeah, it? yeah. Okay. Got it. Thanks, Jacob. Okay. So here's the short version. John Salehammer was one of the top evangelical scholars of our generation, Old Testament scholars. He had strong background in Jewish studies. So he was familiar with Jewish commentaries and things like that. And he literally believed what the new Testament said that if it said David prophesied about Jesus, he literally believed it. And Salehammer uh, was brilliant at finding messianic insights, not in a forced way, but in a real way, opening up the text. He was brilliant in finding intertextual connections, meaning that, that this writer in, in the Old Testament was clearly leaning on what this earlier writer had said or Moses was making something clear about the Messiah here. So Salehammer is brilliant in that regard and a very, very reliable guide. And I would say the big point that he would make is, look at how the Torah as a whole ultimately is showing Israel's failings. Look at how it ends. Look at how it ends within anticipation. There's supposed to be a prophet like Moses, but we haven't seen a prophet like Moses. Look at look at where it's going with a testimony about Israel's failure 
and appointing to the one that will come. And then with that, the goal of the Torah also to be pointing towards atonement and salvation, etc. So I, I believe Salehammer does a, a brilliant job in, in doing this. Uh, I interact uh, with some of his students who've kind of taken up his mantle. Like everything else, you have to read it, come to your own conclusions. Uh, but, you know, he'll show in the Psalms and the editing of the Psalms how there's a clear messianic message and intent in it. So I think there's a lot we can learn from him. So thank you, sir, for the question. That's my short answer. All right, let's go to Phoenix, Arizona. Time is short. How do you pronounce your name, please? My name is Alexio. Alexio. Okay, well, we got something totally else on the board here. Alexio, your question real quick. My question is, um, I just finished my, uh, my last year in my undergrad studying the Old Testament, and a lot of my professors were, how do I say this, they were pretty rude on the Old Testament. They didn't like it. And uh, something that they mentioned that I actually had a question for you, because I feel like you have a good insight on it. Um, they mentioned that the Old Testament law has no um, no um, taking care of uh, intentional sin. So, like, within chapter 4, like verse 13, it says the whole congregation... Yeah, so t- tell you what, I'm, I'm going to jump in, sir, just because I'm, uh, I've got a the end of the show coming up, all right? Uh, Leviticus 5 and 6 deal with a guilt offering, which are for some intentional sins, but look at Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, the rites on the Day of Atonement, they are for forgiveness of transgression, which is willful, intentional rebellion and sin. Leviticus 16 explicitly deals with the problem of intentional sin included in the atonement. Hey, friends, 30 minutes from now, I'm going to be back on YouTube, an exclusive YouTube chat. Tell your friends. Let's get a big turnout. We'll have a blast together. Critics, I'm looking for you too. Join me there.